Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 49 years of experience. We'll <laughs> get into that in a moment. Yeah. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and seeing if I can figure it out. There you go. On today's episode, we're going to head to the pub and cover the beer news, because it's been a while since we've done the beer news. Before we go into the lounge, where we're going to try and crack the nut on what the heck do people mean by cold IPA. And of course, Denny and I will have disagreements about that. But you knew that going in. But before we get into all that, here's a message from some of the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey, we're back, and I'm glad that you are, too. Here come the announcements. Yep, just a couple of announcements today. One, if you haven't checked your podcast feed, there was an episode of The Brew Files last week all about distillation, how to do it, where you can do it, and why you'd want to do it, and particularly playing around with the brand new toy from Bevy, a.k.a. the Air Still Pro. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to you whipping up some hop extract to try. I know, yeah. That, that's definitely going to be one of the first things I'm doing. So, that's the last episode of The Brew Files. So go listen to it, please, and enjoy. And we want to remind you that HomebrewCon is coming up. The American Homebrewers Association event of the year. It's going to be in San Diego at the Town and Country Resort, a place that I really, really like a lot. Happening June 22nd through the 24th. You can get more information at homebrewcon.org. We're going to be there speaking. We'll be recording a podcast. We'll be hanging out drinking beer so you can come and harass us. And I promise I will buy you a beer at club night. (laughs) Yeah, he always does that. It's my go-to. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Best Friends Save Them All. It's a great organization that takes pets from shelters where they'll probably end up being euthanized and gets them uh, adopted or fostered or moved to other shelters, Uh, you know. Save them all. Best friends. What can I tell you? Shoot us a buck or two by clicking on the Patreon link on our homepage, and we will pass it along to best friends. Gotta save the dogs. <laughs> He's singing again. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. Enough of that. Time to have a beer so I can really get my vocal cords going. <laughs> uh, that's a threat if I ever heard one. We're going to head over to the pub. We'll be right back. 
When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a bag of hops. It's nurturing a healthy planet. Yakima Chief Hops has a deep respect for the land that provides a bountiful harvest each year, and they take pride in being advocates of a sustainable, healthy planet. With every hop purchase, you help to support environmental stewardship efforts, such as 134,500 square feet of solar panels, a CO2 recovery system reducing greenhouse gas emissions by more than 50%, and impactful nonprofit partnerships. Sustainability is a journey, not a destination. There is still more work to be done. Follow the journey of Yakima Chief Hops in their annual Corporate Social Responsibility Report at yakimachief.com slash CSR. Experimental Brewing Pub here at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace. We are sitting here drinking a couple beers. Drew, what you having there? Well, I'm having one of my favorite beers recently, and y'all will remember that we just had a talk about this. It's the Pine Mountain Monolith, uh, which is Pine Mountain's GABF Gold Award winning and World Beer Cup Award winning uh, American Brown Ale. And I had that interview got the pack, you know, for the Falcons happy hour. And honestly, out of all the beers in that pack, that was my favorite beer. And I know I sent you a can of it. Yeah, you, you had did. lots of it. Um, I mean, to me, it was kind of hit all those magical spots where a lot of good malt flavor, but not overwhelming, you know, a little bit of sweetness, but not cloying. Uh, definitely left a mark on your tongue. And didn't just try and disappear into a dry, vanished poof of hops. Overall, to me, this was just a fantastic example of the sort of beer I don't think enough people make these days. Yeah, that's that's very, very true, man. You hardly ever see an American brown ale around. And not particularly one that's this well executed. Now, <laughs> I know you, you'd, you'd tried it. And yeah. you'd remarked on it being different than what you were thinking it was going to be, right? Yeah, um, it was a very, very good beer. Um, and I guess because there are so few commercial examples of American Brown Ale out there, I, I wasn't real familiar with it. And the one that I make is very different and probably not at all to style. So I was a bit taken aback when I first tried this one, but I gladly finished the whole thing. 
Oh, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And as opposed to the beer that I know you have coming up, uh, Sessionable. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> I guess Sessionable just kind of depends on your tolerance. huh? It's just a session of one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So... Spill the beans. So uh, I'm having a Sierra Nevada Bigfoot, uh, 2023, actually, this new one. Uh, it is a great beer, and it is a, uh, a counter to anybody who thinks that adding crystal malt makes a beer sweet. Because this beer definitely has some malt sweetness to it, but man, it just has a big old whap of hop bitterness also. It, it is a wonderfully balanced beer. Up well, probably about five of them because the, you know it's not a real expensive beer. I think I paid maybe around three bucks a bottle or something like that. So I drank one right away, of course. And yeah, man, hop slap all over the place, but it was delicious. I and I sat there and sipped it for about an hour and a half, uh, just contemplating. Uh, rich, full bodied, but so bitter that it doesn't come across as cloying or sweet in any stretch of the imagination. And then I had one oh, last a few days ago, I guess, after it had been around for about three weeks, and I can swear that it is starting to mellow already, as <laughs> as Bigfoot does, you know, or or maybe I just burned out my taste buds and I can't tell anymore. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, I have some that I'm going to force myself to put aside at least until next year, and then uh, see what happens. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, not super easy to find, but not completely impossible either. So keep your eyes open. If you see some Bigfoot, pick up a few bottles. Well, and I don't know if they're still doing it. i, I got to imagine they are. But they uh, two years ago, they started selling online a mixed vertical box. Oh, you really? Buy like, yeah, you could buy 12 of them. And it was all the way back to like I want to say 2010, and yeah, hey, look at look at this. It's still actually available online. Thirty five dollars for a case or 12, 12, 12 ounce bottles of 2014, 2016, 2017, and twenty twenty two. I'm ordering uh, as soon as we get done here. Yeah, uh, well, uh, although actually for you you can't because it's only currently shipping to California, uh, D.C., Kentucky, North Carolina, North Dakota, New, uh, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Vermont. If, if only you knew somebody who lived in California. Yeah, right. Hmm, hmm. How can we yep. do this? Um, but this is, you know, that's a really great experience and it plays right into I mean, when I first started getting into craft beer, the rule was always, oh, well, no, you buy the Bigfoot fresh and then you have to let it age at least a year before you can drink it. Bah. Yeah. Now, uh, at the time, we, uh, uh, we didn't quite understand hop slap as a positive thing, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? I've I've always had it fresh when I could get it because I mean, who can wait? <laughs> well, exactly. You, you'd have to actually plan ahead. Now, I think Bigfoot Bigfoot lasts really well for about I want to say a decade, and I think it, depending on what sort of experience you want, you get different things out of it. Or as you said, you know, even a couple of weeks later, you feel like it's changing. Uh, I always thought that my sweet spot with Bigfoot was about. You know, five years. Like if you wanted like these sort of super classical, slightly oxidized uh, barley wine experience. Uh, uh, a, a good friend put on a 15-year tasting mm-hmm. uh, one time that I went to. And the biggest takeaway from that was the remarkable consistency over the years. Uh, none of these beers was really 
drastically different. I mean, the oldest one was not drastically different than the newest one. Yeah, I mean, mostly what you get is you get the pickup of the oxygen and and the fading of the hops, but they yeah. still feel the same across. I mean, it's like you can tell the entire time that it's like, oh, yep, no, that's that's the beer. Right, right, exactly. Um, and plus, I mean, look, Sierra Nevada is super consistent. The Grossmans have invested <laughs> yeah. a lot into making things consistent. Uh, and yeah, it's a classic beer. Uh, you know, I know some of the new barley wine crowd don't like Bigfoot because they don't think it's, you know, a barley wine for what they want. And that's fine. Just more for me. It, it, it is the barley wine, just like a Sierra Nevada pale ale is the American pale ale. Uh, it may not be for you, but you cannot argue that it, they are both the classic examples of the style. I mean, they're both touchstones. Yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. So from Pine Mountain Monolith and Sierra Nevada Bigfoot, on to something slightly older and even more vintage. <laughs> I uh, guess. Yeah. And this came out a couple of weeks back, but like I said, we've been off doing other things other than the beer news. And that was the announcement of a discovery in the ancient city of Lagash uh, in, I think, modern-day Iraq, yeah, in modern-day southern Iraq, uh, by a U.S. and Italian team of an ancient tavern about 5,000 years old. And what I thought was really cool about this was they, they talk about it and they say, well, look, I mean, we found the bowls that had like the, the fish stew that they were eating. Uh, we found like a primitive refrigeration system, benches for everybody to sit around on and, and dine and drink and all this. And it was like, look at this. This is 5,000 years ago. And we already have tavern culture. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, humanity never changes, but uh, I really did think it was interesting to see them call out like things like how they would keep things cold or cool, uh, even there in Iraq. And, you know, I mean, look, Sumerians loved their beer. We know this. And now we have uh, further proof that it was even more communal than I think a lot of people were talking about. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, probably they didn't worry about keeping it cold, huh? Well, I mean, uh, coolish, right? And also remember beer was a fresh product back in those days. So since a lot of times from what I see, it it wasn't like uh, boiled, so lactobacillus from the grain would sour it pretty quickly. So you'd have to drink it fairly fresh. But still, kind of nifty to see that even back 5,000 years ago, we still had the idea of the good neighborhood pub. It depends on what neighborhood you were in, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, next story, we talked last year with... Alan Sprints from Hair of the Dog, and y'all remember, Alan decided that it was time for him to hang up his spurs, or brewing boots, or, I don't know, overalls, uh, but he wanted to retire, and he went to go close Hair of the Dog. Uh, there was actually a really good uh, podcast, uh, was it How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, uh, just recently, uh, with Alan talking about his decision to close the business down, as opposed to try and sell the Hair of the Dog name, and all the brands and all the associated frou with it. And it's obvious that Alan's been very considerate about what he kind of considers really the legacy of the brand, right? The legacy of the whole business. Um, but he also owns that building where Hair of the Dog has been located. And so instead of selling the building like he initially thought he was going to do, he's been reaching out and looking around for people who might be interested in taking it over, some maybe as a tap room or something like that. And he made a deal with a, I guess the best way to put it is a nomadic nano. 
Yeah, something. That, I think that that's a, what he said. I'm not sure what it means, but uh. well, so it, he he struck a deal with the guys behind Labyrinth Forge Brewing, and Labyrinth Forge has been you know running around Portland for the past couple of years doing, yeah, you know, brewing at other people's sites, and so kind of doing a gypsy brewing, but all within uh, the Portland area, and so Labyrinth is going to take over the space. They're rehabbing some of the, the brewing equipment actually sort of downgrading the size, like actually turning more from like four barrels down, I think a little bit, uh, but really kind of taking over the space and the equipment. And they're, they're going to reopen this summer as Labyrinth Forge Brewing. And what I also thought was interesting is in the article that we'll include a link to in the in new school beer, uh, Alan also mentions that he'll be maintaining a space in the building for himself. Now what that space will be used for, who knows, but, Maybe we'll see some more beers because I know he was just blending up a new batch of, I think it was Dawn, um, for bottles. So Hair of the Dog is mostly dead if we're going to be in the Princess Bride School of Things. And we'll and see what he all, does about that space. For all we know, he's just going to be homebrewing too, so don't yeah. get your hopes up. No, but it's always good to see him keep his hands in. Now, speaking yeah. of speaking, of getting our hopes up slash down slash everything else, there's news on the mecha grade front. Uh, if you all have been paying attention to the sponsorship pods, which I hope you have been, you will notice that uh, MechaGrade was uh, no longer a sponsor of the podcast, and not for any reasons of anything acrimonious or anything like that, but because of the next story that we got to tell. And Denny, you want to spill the the deets? Uh, yeah, um, Seth is is selling uh, MechaGrade, uh, his, his part of it at least. Uh, that includes uh, part of the farm, the house, and of course the malt house and the brewery, uh, and 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 the, and the brewery. Yeah, very 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 small brewery. Um, but uh, basically, what happened is that uh, during the pandemic, their sales dropped to zero. They lost uh, the only other guy working there besides Seth, so he was doing the uh, growing, the malting, the brewing. Uh, trying to get out on the road and sell, and it uh, it, it just wasn't working out. And uh, he got frustrated and figured uh, enough is enough. So he's decided to uh, to sell the operation. He's moving out of the state. Uh, I understand his parents may be moving out of the state also, who own the rest of the farm. Uh, it's 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 a shame for us. It's a real shame for him. He had. Uh, been a, a graphic artist in that agency and quit doing that to move back to the family farm in a, a historic old house, beautiful place. Um, and I know that, uh, that he's going to regret leaving all that behind, but you know, things change, life is life and you got to do what you got to do. And farming is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Farming's, farming's hard even when everything's going right. Right. Yeah, so, and, and when you're trying to do it all by yourself, then it just gets that much harder, and he just kind of burned out on the uphill battle. Yeah, and so what it looks like, um, you know, trying to either find investors to keep it going, trying to find somebody who will buy the place and keep it going, but also this may be the end of MechaGrade. Uh, well, it is the end of MechaGrade. Well, somebody may pick up the Maltry, but yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows if they'll keep the brand and everything else going, but still at the same time, really unfortunate because I know the Klon family has like a very long history in that area. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, farming is hard. And it yeah. sucks. 
Well, and running your own business is hard. That's, you know, that's the whole deal right there. Uh, I, I did that for enough years to know that I would never do it again. Uh, turning a, a great hobby into a job that becomes a, a real drudge. And, you know, to some degree, I think that that happened to Seth. He, he liked getting out on the road and talking to people about the malt. He liked uh, brewing the beer for their, uh, their little tasting room tap house. But again, you know, there's only so much you can do by yourself. Yeah. Burnout is real. Yeah, I mean, I hope I hope we see some uh, some variety of that survive because I we've really liked their malts, but also more importantly, we hope that uh, Seth and family come out of all of this okay. Yeah, right. Uh, it's a very stressful time for him. Yep. And finally, as we are recording this episode, as as Denny and I are sitting here yabbering, it is Orval Day, which means by the time you hear this episode, Orval Day will be about a week in the past. Uh, but it can be any time you get a bottle of Orval. I was going to say, there's never a bad time for a ball. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Denny, it's one of your favorites, right? Indeed. And it's also just a very odd little beer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to put it. I mean, the evolution of it is what's really fascinating. Well, I mean, one, it's the only it's the only one of the Trappist beers that really kind of is a pale ale. Um, I consider it more of an amber. Yeah. Hairs. They are meant to be split. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's in its own sort of world, even inside the Trappist beer world. And we've talked about it before. It is also a interesting and unique experience for the way that that beer changes and teaches you about the impacts of Britannomyces over long term and exactly what sort of flavor it is. Denny, you talked about in the past having a, a tasting of Orval when you were over in Belgium, like a, like what, three different samples? Yeah, I did have a chance uh, to try several different samples, although they weren't side by side or anything. It was just various places I went to had it. But I did have one that was two weeks old, two months old, and a year old. And man, these were just like so, so different. Um, the, the two week old was like a, an amber ale with just a, a slight edge of funkiness to it. The um, two-month-old was had just a bit more bite and character to it. And by the time it was a year old, it had really developed that uh, that Brett character that you come to think of. Yeah, and see, my favorite way to have it is about 18, I think. Uh, because by then, it's become effervescently dry. Uh, the bitterness is still there. It's got that sort of Belgian hooey, uh, to use a technical term. Uh, but the beer itself presents as this wonderfully crisp and dry and very, very sparkling, funky little beer. Uh, but again, that's one of the fascinating things about Orval, and the reason why I think it's so cool is that you can get all those different experiences out of this one beer. The brewery itself yeah. is the brewery itself is gorgeous. The monastery where uh, where the brewery is is absolutely gorgeous with these sort of picturesque ruins uh, attached to it. Uh, it is when you turn down into that little valley where the the, the brewery is and the abbey is. Uh, let's face it, where the abbey is with the brewery attached. There you <laughs> go. Uh, it's like you just turned a corner into the Shire in a way. 
Uh, make sure you stop at the inn up there. It's one of the few places in the world where you can get the, the actual Potter's beer that they have. Uh, highly recommended as an experience, no matter if it's Orvalde or not. I'm ready to go, man. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. That's a, uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful place. All right. How about we get out of here and we go talk about some brewing? Yeah, as if we haven't. Let's talk about some home brewing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll be over in the brewery talking about what I've been up to. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Choose your own brew venture. Join for one year and receive a complimentary brewing book to match your beer journey. Select from more than 60 books, including our favorite, Simple Home Brewing, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun, written by Denny and Drew. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and treat your shelf to a new brewing book. Get offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Why yeast yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among brewmasters' favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272 PC North American Lager and 2352 PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. you see it it's a little blurb blurb a little bling bling that's right we're in the brewery it's time for us to sit down and talk about some of the things we're brewing while we sit amongst the fermenters and wax rhapsodic about the things we've made in the past and the things we're going to make now so you'll hear this in a moment because denny and i have debated we just had the q a episodes with uh, john and we debated what the heck is a cold ipa uh, well, we're going to get you some more information about a cold IPA from uh, David Basil here in a minute. But having tasted David's beer that you'll hear us talk about in a moment and having done some more reading about it and kind of seeing where it builds some of its ideas, almost like a cream ale, I'm going to have to make one of these now. <laughs> it's just going to have to happen. I'm still trying to debate whether or not I want to do it with sort of the tropical fruit uh 
emphasis that I think a lot of the cold IPAs out there are doing, or if I want to kind of try and run it a little bit more classical West Coast. Uh, but I will update you on that. I do think, because I still have my hands on some of it, they talk about, oh, you can either use rice or corn. The version that we're having with uh, David here in a minute is made with rice mostly and some oats. But I think I'm going to do it with some of the malted corn. Uh, but because the, because the malted corn is actually so uh, distinctive, I'm going to probably dial it back from where I normally do for my cream meal. So stay tuned for that. This is definitely it. It's also finally brewing season for me because, holy poop balls, my patio is actually dry. <laughs> I haven't been able to brew anything because I haven't been able to take my system outside to go brew because it's been wet, uncharacteristically wet. I mean, our average here in Pasadena is 20 inches a year. This year so far, we've had 40. Wow. <laughs> I'm not so arguing, can, about, I'm not arguing ship- about the rain. We've needed the rain. <laughs> I was going to say, you can ship back some of the water we've been sending you. Hell no. We got it now. It's ours. <laughs> um, I'll, ship, I'll ship it back to you in, in the form of beer. How about that? Yeah, okay. That'll do it. So that's what I'm doing, but this is about the beginning of brewing season for me, so wish me luck because it's going to be sort of crazy here for the next couple of weeks. Uh, now, Denny, what about you, yes? sir? Um, well, I just kind of passed a milestone. Uh, March 19th was the uh, 25th anniversary of the first batch of beer that I brewed. And it just happened to be that I was ready to brew batch number 600 at that point. So, uh, on March 19th, I brewed my 25th anniversary, 600th batch. Uh, it, is kind of like loosely based on Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Uh, my first batch was an extract version of that, although I was such a new brewer at the time, I didn't even know that. Um, and uh, for Big Brew this year, uh, our good friend Crispy Fry has uh, revamped his Nearly Nirvana recipe, which is uh, based on the Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and was Big Brew recipe years back. And uh, he's kind of revised it, and it's going to be a big brew recipe this year. And I kind of revised his recipe for my own. So mine is a, a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale-ish kind of thing. Mm, Sierra Nevada Pale ish type thing. So <laughs> we should have Crispy on to talk about the Nearly Nirvana and his development process on that. But um, what are you doing differently? Um, it's it's a, a little bit stronger. And uh, a little bit uh, more bitter and uh, more finishing hops, uh, but it's you know still the the same basic beer, uh, you know pale malt. Although I use Maris Otter, so that's going to bump it up a bit. I used just a touch of some Crystal Twenty in there. I think about maybe half a pound. Uh, I bittered it with some uh, Veterans Blend hops that I've had around for a long, long time, and. They're 13% and probably better for bittering than than aroma at this point. And then just I'm finishing it up with a whole bunch of Cascade, both in the kettle and uh, to dry hop. I pitched pitched BRY 97 dry ale yeast, and it's out there fermenting away happily. So what was your original gravity on it? I think it was like uh, 1061. It was actually a little bit. I think it was 1064, actually, is what it came out at uh, because I just got incredible efficiency. And 
I added another quart of water to it to get it down to 1061. I was gonna say, I think even at 1061, you're you're pushing past pale ale. Well, that's and that's what Crispy's is, and I'm not gonna call it a pale ale. I'm calling it my 25th anniversary batch. There you go. <laughs> so it's not quite a pale ale. It's not quite an IPA. Uh, I, I I still remember every time I think about Sierra Nevada having a conversation with uh, um, Martin Cornell. Uh, I think last year, and him saying that Sierra Nevada pale ale shouldn't be considered a pale ale, but it's a perfectly good IPA. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I was when it was a 1064 I mean, and 58 IBUs, I was afraid it was going to come off like a, like an underhopped IPA, at least to my tastes. So that's why I added that extra water to it. Well, you know that there are some listeners out there who are just going, well, why don't you just add more hops? Because that's not what I wanted. I have <laughs> I have tons and tons of IPA around. IPA is what I make probably 90% of the time. I wanted to make... IPA minus. There you go. Strong pale ale. Yeah, right. Exactly. Anybody remember when that was a category people talked about? Um, <laughs> all right. Well, now, I think it's time for us to break into another one of our sessions of Drewson's Denny Beard to Torture Him or vice versa. In this particular case, the vice versa. You sent me beer to right. have me try and uh, dig into. And this was the, the double IPA, right? Yep. yep, and as most people may know or may not know, I've way gotten over naming my batches, well, generally. Uh, so this is just double IPA. All right, so double IPA, semi-ish inspired by Sticky Hands, right? Was that well, the-, the, the, the grist is pretty much taken from Bottom Cutter. Uh, they don't tell you percentages, but they tell you what goes into it. So uh, I, I based the grist on that, and that's why th- there is what there is in it. Um, and uh, for the hops, I mean, number one, Block 15 tells you nothing about sticky hands whatsoever. True. And number two, they always change up the hops. I mean, they make a dank version, a tropical version. It just kind of depends on what they can get their hands on. So the hops change, but the the concept behind the beer is the same. So I kind of tried to get some of the same hop character that Sticky Hands has uh, and using the the idea of the grist from Bottom Cutter. There we go. And so let's dig into my review on Denny's Double IPA. Whatever, Whatever Denny wants. wants. I'm sorry. Denny yeah, no, gets. Subjecting you to that, but here we are. Another man. Welcome to another Denny issue wants. of Drew Is Tastes beer. Denny's Beer and Hopefully Doesn't Die. Ha! All right, so in this particular round, Denny has sent me a double IPA, batch number 599, uh, which, uh, good Lord, man, really? Nearly 600 batches. This one is a double IPA. The recorded gravity on it comes in at around 1080 or so. Uh, final gravity around down around 1016, 1015. Uh, about 8.5% alcohol with 88%, or sorry, with 88 IBUs. At least all of this is according to Denny's notes on Grandfather. You can find this recipe and others on the Grandfather website, and we'll move this over to the experimental brewing profile. Uh, so it looks like, Denny, you brewed this on Fozzie, which, if I remember correctly, is your G40. And this has Maris Otter, Munich 10, beet sugar, and 10 Lovebond caramel malt. So that's 74% Maris Otter, 10% Munich, 10% beet sugar, and about 5.5% of the 10 Lovabond 
roughly. All right, so let's crack this puppy open and see what we've got here. For listeners who don't remember, Denny usually sends me beer in these, or actually we both send each other beers in these little PET screw top bottles. And um, I can just tell you right now, just even opening the bottle, suddenly I'm getting hit with a big old piney dankness on the nose. All right, some good carbonation going here. Another nice head on top of a sort of copperish body. Fairly clear. The clarity might not be for my glass. Uh, nice little white head. Huh. So immediately I get citrus. I get herbs. I get weed. Weed. Um, I also get those candied peach rings. Yeah, you know, the, the little ones that come with coating and the sugar that you find at the grocery, or, well, you find at the gas station when you're on a road trip. No yeast fermentation characteristics. I'm not getting like any diastole or fruity esters or anything like that. But this is all driven by the hops. And then there's a background of a toasty note, which I think is that Munich and the Marisotter coming into play here. So looking at the hops real quick, we've got Veterans Blend. We've got Chinook from Michigan. Veterans Blend at uh, 60 minutes. We've got Chinook at 10 minutes. We've got Amarillo at 3 minutes. We've got BSGs, uh, a couple of new BSG varieties, uh, Sativia, Evergreen, and Zambia, or Zamba. And so just to put it out there, uh, these are all like last-minute hops, like sort of just... Uh, Whirlpool, actually Danny does new Whirlpool, so these are flame out hops. Uh, so again, BSG, Sativia, Evergreen, and Zamba. And let's see, real quick, the Evergreen says it is peach and apricot, so hey, there's your peach rings. Uh, bright citrus, which yeah, I get the citrus, and watermelon candy. I'm not sure I get the watermelon, but I definitely get the candy aspect. The Zamba says juicy tropical fruits, pineapple, mango, stone fruits, again with your peach, candy. Again, with the peach rings and orange tangerine. And this one is, it says here, uh, Zamba is the first proprietary release in the BSG Hop Solutions program. So this is only available from BSG. Hmm. Still getting a lot of that, that kind of candy and toasted bread. All right. And then the sativa, uh, sativa. And then the sativa, it says here, ripe stone fruit, sweet floral, and soft peach flavors. So, yeah, we got three hops in a row that all give me the peach rings. <laughs> all right, and then we get a dry hop of three days, and I'm going to assume this is Denny's uh, standard, you know, cold dry hopping. Three days with Cascade, the original Cryo Pop, and then Cryo Citra. So that's where we're getting all this, uh, all, all the, the sort of the, the citrus flavors coming in. All right, let's give it a taste. Oh, ha. That packs a punch. So the very first thing I get is I get a lot of that citrus oil. And then it's immediately followed up by the peach rings again. So again, we get the candied peach. I'm not getting any sort of tropical fruit notes, but that, that may all just be covered up by what I'm perceiving as that peach ring character. Middle of the, the beer is definitely Munich-driven. It's definitely malt-driven. But I will tell you what, we get down to the finish of that. And the finish of that is dry, bitter, and lingering. 
So there's a little bit of a um, sort of almost like a little mid body leave. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't dry out like you would say in a modern West Coast IPA that is just basically Pilsner malt or maybe some Carapils. The Munich definitely leaves an impression in here. Denny says he fermented this with the BRY97, which is becoming one of our favorite dry yeasts, that American West Coast ale yeast. Um, wow. Yeah, no, it just kind of sits in there and, and makes you say, yes, hi, I'm having a double IPA. Yeah, it's so funny. So much of the front character is that citrus and peach, but not really a lot of like what I would say overt hop hop type characters. And then you get to that back end, and that back end wants to just take your tongue out behind the shed. Um, Danny says he's got Brutan B in here, Nutrient, World Flock, you know, all the sort of usual. Single infusion mash with a raise out to mash out, and then fermented at 65 for 10 days, and then raised up to you know, kind of drive out any diastole and then crash down to do the dry hopping. Um, again, a lot of chew but not in any way that makes you feel like sickly sweet. Now, I can't remember if Danny had said this originally when he was talking about the beer, but this seems very much in line with sticky hands. And Denny, in his most generous way and nature, sent me a fresh can of sticky hands that was literally canned less than a month ago from when I'm recording this. So isn't life wonderful? Alrighty. So... I have a fresh can of Block 15's Sticky Hands. Like I said before, this was, I believe, an inspiration for this beer. Remember, we do not believe in the idea of cloning. We believe in the idea of homage, because we're both terribly pretentious people. So let's see what the Sticky Hands is, and I'll taste it next to the the double IPA from today. And here we go. There we go. One nice little can pop. So the very first thing I'll say is, in comparison to Denny's batch number 599, the Sticky Hands is definitely paler. So I don't think we get any of that Munich in here. This is going to be a little bit more more close, I think, in the malt body to just pale or Pilsner with maybe a little something extra, but not a lot. Uh, and again, I mean, even Denny's wasn't all that much. I mean, it was mostly Maris Otter, uh, 14 pounds of Maris Otter with three pounds of other malt and some sugar. And so let's see, the sticky hands. Okay, so where Denny's double IPA registered as, you know, all that kind of peach ring and the citrus, sticky hands is weed and pine with some citrus backing behind it. And also a little bit more of a tea characteristic, a little bit more like that hop leaf character. All right, and here with the sticky hands, we get... Sort of a smoother evolution in a way, uh, and this isn't, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. What I get is I get a upfront hop character, and that hop, hopping level seems to stay consistent all the way through the palate. Whereas, you know, Denny's starts off with that that big sort of hop note, gives you more of the malt character, and then blasts you with a bunch of bitterness in the back end. Sticky Hands is not nearly as bitter as the beer that Denny uh, sent me. And so we can kind of see where it, they share some notes, like they, they share some of that dankness. They share some of the same sort of body notes as well. But also here with the, the different hopping choices, we get two different approaches. Now, the native question that somebody's going to ask me is, hey, Drew, if you're going to drink these, which are you going to drink? And my answer is both. Why are you asking me something silly? 
So yeah, that's yeah. Sticky hands comes into a very sort of even back end bitterness, um, and that's actually the first time I think you see the malt in the beer is when you get to that final taste. Denny's beer, yeah, definitely has more of that sweet candy uh, peach ring thing up front. And then I think because, I, you know, I think the difference in the, in the hopping in the back end, that perception, it all comes down to the malt. So I don't think it's, it's something necessarily about hop schedules. I don't think it's anything something funny. Obviously, we have a lot of different hop varieties in here. I doubt that Sticky Hands is using all the hop varieties that Denny was using. But really, really cool. Really kind of n- a nice difference, but you can see where they're sort of the same family, shall we say, same general direction. Now, I think at this point in time, we'll come back to the live show, and I'm going to sit down and talk to Denny about those three different hops they used in the back end, the ones that gave us all of this peach character. So sit back. Here we go. I'm going to go finish these beers. Whatever Denny wants, Denny gets. And little man, what Denny wants is a beer. I want all you out there to know that this isn't the last you're going to hear of Drew singing. Oh, God. (laughs) (sighs) He did it. He recorded it. It's mine now. Yeah. Sorry, people. The only thing I can say is if I ever capture Denny singing, I'm going to inflict it on you, too. (laughs) Just to prove it's not the hearing me sing is not the worst thing you could happen. It would make people's eardrums bleed. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike the beer. The beer was actually good. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you you enjoyed it, man. Uh, I, I kind of decided that I've been drinking a lot of double IPAs recently, and so why not just go ahead and make one? It'd been years since I did, so uh, so it was time. So I, I'm glad that I kind of got it. Uh, something that you'd like. I'm glad that I got it carbonated for a change. <laughs> Yay, carbonation! Yeah, really. Well, partic- particularly for something like a double IPA, where you you want that carbonation to pop the hops and sort of cut back some of the malt body. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think overall it was, I mean, it was a hell of an experience, which is always <laughs> nice. Great. Well, you know, uh, you went through the, uh, the specs on it and I need to kind of make some corrections there. You were, uh, you were looking at the, the recipe sheet for what ideally would have happened. Ah. Uh, it didn't quite work out like that. Uh, I use the uh, crisp number 19 Maris Otter, and I have found that that thing has a real tendency to produce huge, huge dough balls. Um, mm. And I, I, I don't think I got them all out. Um, and plus the fact it was a little bit bigger beer. So my OG was, uh, down to 1074, uh, you know, from what the, the recipe predicted, which I think was like 82 or something like that. But the recipe also predicted a final gravity of uh, 1018. This is a good time to repeat my mantra. Never trust a recipe calculator to give you an accurate FG. If it does, it's a coincidence. Uh, the only way to well, get an accurate FG is to measure it. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we all know what they're doing. It's basically, here's how much sugar you produce in the recipe. The yeast strain that you specified says we get 75% attenuation. So we'll knock 75% of the points off of it. That's your final gravity. Well, yeah. I mean, some of them try to take into account mash temperature, you know, and how much crystal malt there is and stuff. But, you know, like I said, if if they get it, it's going to be, 
a rarity, an unusual thing. Yeah, so some anyway, people are trying so, to use a crystal ball to predict the future. Yeah. So this double IPA started at 1074. You want to guess what the final gravity was? 1010? 1006. Oh, wow. And yeah. that was with the use of the BRY97? Yep. Yep, two packs of BRY97, but I really think what uh, what did it was uh, mash temp being about 152 and uh, 10% table sugar. Oh, that's the other thing. The recipe says uh, beet sugar. I just grabbed the wrong one. It's actually cane sugar. Not that it really makes any yeah. difference. I was going to say, if, I, if, you could tell the, if you could taste the difference between cane sugar and beet sugar, actually even on a teaspoon, I'd be impressed. Uh, you know what? I had a guy tell me last week he definitely can. Yeah. It's like, okay, fine. You, you, you keep telling me that. Um, but I just didn't want anybody thinking they had to go out there and actually use beet sugar for it. Uh, they're, they're interchangeable. Well, it is funny because in the, in the recipe itself, it says cane parentheses beet sugar. Oh, really? So, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so it got uh, dry hopped with two ounces of cryo pop, two ounces of cryo citra, and an ounce of good old T90 cascades. And I I have started now when I use a, especially a lot of cryo hops, I've started throwing in some regular T90 because Sometimes I found the cryo hops can be almost too clean. I, I, and it's, that's hard to describe. Hard you, to you say. Want a little leaf. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I, I think that the, uh, the, the bract that produces the slight tannins, uh, from just using regular T90s, uh, really kind of rounds out the flavor of the cryo. Or maybe it just, gives you more of what you're expecting to get, you know, uh, because just all cryo is so different. Yep. At any rate, that's what I did. And I'm, I'm real happy with the way that it came out. Uh, but the, like, Oh, the other thing is that, uh, because of the, uh, changed, uh, OG and FG, it came out to 8.93%. How dare you? Um, but <laughs> l- let's talk, let's talk those three, those three newest, Hoppish things from BSG, the Sativia, the Evergreen, and the Zamba. Do you attribute anything in that beer to those particular hops? Oh, I'm sure that I do, but I couldn't tell you what because I know nothing about them, <laughs> other than other than what you read off, which is, I mean, that's pretty much all that I know too. Uh, I got uh, BSG kindly sent them to me as samples. They've been sitting there in my hop freezer. Uh, I decided, okay, it's time to do these. I was hoping that the Sativia, based on the name of it, would uh, kind of give it some dankness. And I don't, it might have, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to get a hold of more of these and try them alone. But whatever, I think that the whole combination turned out great, huh? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, look, overall, I would not, uh, I would not kick that beer out of bed for eating crackers. <laughs> and you kept you said that uh, you got candied peaches out of it, and I've never had those those snacks that you were talking about. Once you said that, I I can kind of see it. I I got more like mango and guava from it. Although you know, once you said candied peaches, it's like yeah, that would work too. Yeah, I mean, and again, all these flavor descriptors. It's always what does your brain associate that particular yeah. impulse with? And yeah, for me, it's it's those candy peach rings that you buy in the gas station, <laughs> you know, cause it's, it's that slightly fake peach ester thing. 
along with uh, along with that little bite uh and it just that's what my brain trips on uh the other one i tell people all the time is uh like a lot of things that have tropical fruit and spice like to them like say like a saison or uh, other belgian strains a lot of times my brain will read that as hawaiian tropical fruit punch <laughs> yeah yeah it's just, well it's yeah how it goes after after i listened to your review last night i sat down with a glass of it and really kind of analyzed it from the uh, the point of view of what you were saying and there's nothing there that i can really disagree with Aha! that's going in the notes <laughs> yeah yeah you know the the finish was not quite so dry and tannic when the beer was a little bit younger mm-hmm. but on the other hand it's kind of what i was going for too so i'm happy with it yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I'd be perfectly happy if I made that beer. So I think you did good, bud. Why, thank you very much, sir. There you go. Now let's get into a subject that where there's been a lot of discussion. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflux mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Q and A show where uh, we had Mr. Palmer on and we were discussing cold IPA. I got a message from David Basil, who is a home brewer and works in a small commercial brewery, and he said, "Look, this is what I think cold IPA should be, and I'll send you some to uh, to show you what it is." Um, it was a, a really good beer. We had a great conversation with David. 
So uh, sit back, grab a beer, unless you're driving, and check it out. So to answer your question, I, I homebrew all the time. Uh, I'm also head brewer at a, uh, a very, very small brewery um, in Shorewood, Illinois. But yeah, so I, I, I basically reached out to you guys because I wanted to talk about, you know, obviously cold IPA, um, just in general, because I mean, people just don't stop talking about this thing. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because I, I, I have my personal opinions. I don't think that, uh, there's a right or wrong answer. I think there's a way that we could positively steer it in a good direction. I think if it fails, it'll fail. Um, so I, you know, what I did was I, I essentially just had made my uh, homebrew batch because I was just kind of testing the waters here. And uh, and I heard your guys' podcast a few weeks ago, and, you know, I, I was listening to everybody talk about it, and, and there's just really no definitive answer, which is totally fine. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of expected being a, a newer style. You know, everything's evolving so much in, in the craft brew industry right now that, it was just kind of fun that I figured, you know, I'll send you guys a, a sample of what I made. And if you guys want to talk about it, you know, we could talk about it and see hey, where it goes. Hey, I'm perfectly fine with that. And just to, I do think it's funny that, yeah, our conversation was about what the hell is cold IPA because everybody keeps talking about it. And this is in spite of the fact that Kevin Davey, who sort of takes the credit for that term, uh, yeah. has been out there very loudly proclaiming. This is what cold IPA is. You know, it's a an IPA with 20 to 40% of rice or corn in it, and you ferment it with a, a lager yeast, but warmer, not necessarily ale temperature, but warmer, and that's what a cold IPA is. And then, of course, you go around, and everybody else is like, no, cold IPA is this. <laughs> so, yeah, right. so yeah. David, to your mind, what is a cold IPA? So so my mind, and this is, this is not just as a beer drinker. This is also looking at it from a uh, – a selling point, you know, something as far as I guess you could kind of say marketing aspect as well is, um, you know, just like hazy IPAs, there's there's a bunch of different styles, there's a bunch of different ways to make it. Uh, so I don't think there's ever going to be a full on right or wrong way. But if I were to personally put this into um, what, what I think would be the best description for it, I think it would definitely be some sort of um, very neutral based, um, I guess you could consider it an American lager uh, grain bill. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I personally have uh, 20% rice in mine, but I also have 5% oats and uh, just a touch of, of honey malt um, just at the very end, um, just to kind of play around with with the malt itself. So it's, it's just supposed to be a very clean, very easy grain bill, but um, I also like to, I think that it, they should be right around at least 7% um, ABV. I think that personally cold IPA should be clean, neutral body, but I think that it should showcase a little bit of West Coast style on the beginning of the boil, on the hot side. And then I think you can, especially with all these hops nowadays, uh, all these fruit tropical hops, um, and this is for selling points, for selling purposes, and just based on trends right now, is getting really good juicy dry hops mm -hmm. um, on the end. So when you look at the beer as a whole, 
Um, you have, you know, everybody's, everybody's favorite right now is, you know, everybody's getting back into lagers. Everybody's wants easy drinking, crisp, clean. They want to take the caramel malts out and they want to emphasize on, you know, even in some cases, Pilsner malts in IPAs, uh, which I'm not fully in agreement with, but you know, right on, right on. Everything's just getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And I think it's because they want to showcase all of these really, really cool hops that are all coming out because, mm-hmm. um, what I heard a couple of weeks ago was, uh, just in the past 10 years, there's actually been an increase of about 30% larger, uh, volume of hops. And that's just because of, you know, the demand and, and there's a lot more hop farmers and everybody's trying out new things. Um, so it's, it's growing with the beer industry, which is great, but you're also going to see beers change because of that fact, you know, before you had, you know, as far as IPAs go, you had a lot of, you know, your, your, uh, your sea hops, you know, your, your cascades and everything. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, cascade was changed into Simcoe, you know, it's bigger brother and, you know, stronger flavors and everybody's going towards stronger, stronger, stronger. And then, you know, now it's starting to, to die back down because of all these fruity tropical hops. So now that I'm uh, talking to your ear off, no, 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 man. My, That's, this is exactly what we wanted. Yeah. So my my idea for this for this cold IPA is whether or not you ferment warmer or colder. Um, as far as like getting fruit out of your yeast character, if you ferment a lager yeast warm, I personally don't think you're going to get that much out of doing it that way. I think as long as you just keep your keep in the range that your, your yeast is going to be, you know, healthy and, and fully ferment out because I think that this has to be a very clean drinking beer, but in the same sense, you don't want any hop uh, volatiles that are, that are floating around that are causing, you know, hop haze. You don't want any sort of proteins floating around. I mean, it should be a nice, clean, almost drink like a lager, but still recognize all of the hops that you're that you're introducing to us. So you so don't have to wait until December to drink, you know, a West Coast IPA. It's kind of like kind of like a mix between all these different beers that's just appealing more to the masses rather than being a definitive set category. What percentage of rice did you use, David? So I used um, 18%. Okay. And then you said a little bit of oats and some honey malt. And what was the base malt? Like just two row? Like uh, two? Yeah, two row brewer's malt. Okay. So yield standard American uh, two row. Um, now yeah. for you, when, you, when you're thinking cold IPA, there's always that, that question, okay, lager yeast. Do you use a lager yeast in this and which one? I did. So, and that's only because of, you know, seeing a lot of other people do it that way. Um, I personally use the 3470. Um, I got it, you know, a nice healthy pitch of it. And I actually fermented at uh, right around 62 or 63 degrees. So high on the high side for, for a lager yeast, um, this is my first time making it. So would I change anything? You know, any changes in the future I might do. I might, I'm a, I might ferment maybe a little bit colder, um, but I, 
I'm pretty happy with with the actual uh, the fermentability. Uh, I think the flavor, as far as the malt and you know the yeast, everything that was combined, I thought was good. Um, I might add an additional dry hop, or maybe try to uh, adjust my dry hop a little bit just to get a little bit more of that big bold aroma. Um, but other than that, I I actually keep my my dry hopping at uh, as a single dry hop, just because, like I said, I, I want this to be like a last minute, you know, right at day seven. Um, I'm not trying to pull any files or, or anything like that, you know. I'm not trying to pull any of that in, in this style of IPA. I just want basically as much clean... Uh, expression of the hops as possible without getting, you know, I really don't want to pull a lot of, you know, stone fruit and like soft fruit. I kind of want a nice fresh fruit, fresh citrus, um, even, even some fresh berry with the hops that I used. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, that's more than enough to whet my appetite. So I think yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm, s- I'm sitting here <laughs> looking at the can with this list of hops and I think it's time to drink some. Yeah. So we'll go crack open a man bun cold IPA. So why man bun, by the way? Uh, I think, you know, right now, man, or well, maybe not right now. I just thought it was funny because I think this, this style resembles the younger generation. You know, a lot of them have man buns in their hair and uh, it's just kind of been this running joke. You know, you, you walk into a gym and you see all these young kids and they all got man buns. So it's just kind of a an ode to taking away from the what well, you know the IPAs of ten years ago and and trying to redo and make something that's appealing to the everyday drinkers that are now you know as obviously as young as twenty one years old. Yeah, see, my, my only problem with a man bun is I just don't have the hair to have one anymore. Either do I, so it's kind of a jealousy <laughs> thing at this point. I do, but I'm too old. Um, so uh, on the uh, on the aroma here, I immediately got a big hit of lemon and some orange and a lot of dankness. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say I get, uh, I, get I also get thyme. Yeah, wow. you know that's that's uh, oh that's yeah actually, yeah. I do get that as well, and um, you know I kind of think that that's the Simcoe. Uh, it, yeah, Simcoe it might can be have a, some woodiness in there. And it, it, it might be the Strata also, you know? Well, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you, you gave us these wonderful little black cans, and they they list out all the the, the major ingredients here, a.k.a. the hops and the yeast. Um, and <laughs> yeah. i got to say, it's like uh, Simcoe Strata, Simcoe Strata, Nelson Savon, Brew 1, Idaho 7, Nelson Savon. Um I'm assuming those are all different additions by the sentence, if people couldn't hear the Correct. line that I was saying. Uh, so how is that first dose of Simcoe and Strata going? So um, what I did, um, just going to go over, before I just go over the uh, what I put in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go over why okay. I, I did this. So like I said, the, the first sip, that little bit of bitterness, I wanted almost an ode to a West coast. I wanted a nice clean bitterness. I wanted to pull that out, but at the end of the day, I don't want it too resinous, too piney. I'm trying to blend everything together. So I did, you know, Simcoe because I really wanted to get that kind of wood pine. Um, 
depending on the additions that you put it in, you can you can obviously, you know, later additions, you're going to pull a little bit more passion fruit and berry. Um, strata, I think you get a lot of berry with strata um, and definitely a lot of ripe fruit out of it as well. So I kind of wanted to pull all those flavors at different times of the boil. So right at 60 minutes, uh, Simcoe and Strata, um, basically just clean bitterness, get it out of the way, get some of that, that little bit of woody piney, um, that can, that can come off, you know, the, the, take as much oil out as possible with at your 60 minute mark. Um, I also did another edition of Simcoe Strata. I did that at 30 minutes, um, 10 minutes. I just did Strata. And then I did a very long whirlpool at um, for about 30 minutes at 190 degrees, and that was with Nelson Sauvin, Strata, and Simcoe. So if you can see the trend, I'm trying to keep the all those bitterness, all those big IBUs, uh, you know, on the hot side. But then I'm starting to kind of blend these these newer tropical hops. Mm-hmm into the whirlpool, but still bring in those old, you know, a little bit more old, older school hops as well. Um, and then when I come to my dry hop, it's all, you know, brew one, Idaho seven, Nelson seven, you know, just those itself. Just trying to go for the, the bigger fruit characters. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you, I'm trying to remember, you said you did the dry hop at what day seven cold and Correct. for how long? So I dry hopped, um, and at this point, fermentation was still, you know, I think it might have been maybe two or three points away. It mm-hmm. was uh, it was pretty close, but just enough to, to help push that, you know, extra bit of oxygen out, um, try to keep as much hot burn out as possible because this is going to be a drier beer. Um, the last thing I want is to, to risk anything like that, you know, any harsh bitterness that's unpleasant. Um, so I just chose just a single, like a very heavy single dry hop edition. Uh, I felt like I could control the dropout a little bit easier that way. Uh, so I, at, at day seven, a little bit of fermentation left. Um, I kept it in there for probably another, I think it was six days. Right. Well, and then, um, yeah, pulled it and transferred and everything. Well, I'm going to say, I really like, I mean, there's a really nice layering to this beer. Yeah. I mean, great aftertaste. Well, I mean, I get bitterness, but I don't get like the sort of classical West Coast, I'm going to knock your teeth out type bitterness. But I I do get a very firm bitterness that lasts all the way through. I get the berries. I get the thyme flavor. I get the citrus. When we get into the, the finish... Um, not only do I get some of the tropical fruit, although it's not as tropical as I would think with some of the, the hops that you have in there. Um, what I also yeah. do get is I do get a little bit of, a little bit of kind of that noble leafy character, if that makes sense. Yes. Just a little bit of the hop green, but not mm-hmm. enough. I know Denny is very sensitive to, to hop burn and hop astringency, but not enough yeah. to really sort of overpower the back end of the beer. Yeah. Um, and I'm, sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm picking up a, a very, very light, uh, kind of like powdery astringency on my mouth and teeth, but it, it's not unpleasant. It, it, it simply is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'm thinking is that hop leaf character. 
Yeah, that could be. And, and the, the aftertaste, man, when you do like a retro nasal, it's like berries all over the place. Yeah, it's, you know, it's crazy because I feel like I have a, a pretty sensitive palate considering, you know, being a, a chef and, you know, I've been a wine guy running wine bars and uh, everything like that for my whole life. Brewing is actually uh, a more recent secondary thing that I'm now starting to, you know, push a little, a little bit farther along. So I've always had this very sensitive palate. And, um, you know, it's funny because as soon as you say time, it, it immediately brings me to some fruit flavors that actually pair extremely well with thyme. And um, a lot of times it's berries, uh, especially raspberry. Uh, raspberry, lemon, and thyme are actually extremely compatible uh, in, the, in the culinary world. So, so that might be why it could be, you know, some of the woodiness that's, that's coming out. Cause a lot of time character does have a little bit of woodiness and, mm-hmm. uh, and Drew, I do agree with you on, on the, uh, the actual leafiness. One thing too, is every single one of these hops in here is 12% or more alpha <laughs> acids. So, I mean, they're, they're all big, big, big hops. Yep trying to emphasize them all in the cleanest possible way. So are you going to get a lot of soft character? You know, you're not going to get that. You're not going to get that soft, you know, gooseberry melon out of Nelson that you might with a thialized, you know, biotransfer with, with, with these hops. I think that, uh, you know, trying to get everything as clean of an expression as possible without, you know, trying to get into that biotransformation and, and thiols. I'm, I'm really not trying to do that in this beer, even though the hops work great with that, that, uh, you know, approach. Um, with this one, the, the main goal is I just wanted to have just a really good IPA that you could drink like a lager, but still get those bitterness and not feel like y- your, uh, your palate is just overly, sweetened yeah and uh it heavy even you know especially with the the summer coming up well and this is very light bodied right i know one of our objections usually to a lot of hazies is how mouth coating they are and the yeah. fact that you, like after about one of them i'm kind of done with them uh this one doesn't do that so just give me an idea what was the original gravity on this and what was the final <laughs> gravity on this uh you can ballpark it yeah, because if, if I if I exit out of my phone here, uh, <laughs> we're gonna close this out, and that's the last thing I want to do. Um, so I believe the I believe it was right around ten seventy two, mm-hmm. and I think it finished at like ten ten. I want to say. Okay. Wow. More uh, from ballparking. And again, just to remind people, that was up against using oh, that was using thirty four seventy. At sixty two, sixty three to to drive that fermentation. Yes, and th- correct. And then, like again, ballparky. How many IBUs? And can you give me an idea of how big that dry hop charge was with those all the the brew one and all that? So for my IBUs, they're about sixty two IBU, mm-hmm. which I, I personally think in this style, anywhere from fifty to seventy is um, is more than enough. I think once you start getting past seventy. You almost need that a little bit heavier mouthfeel mm-hmm. um, to just to combat all those you know harsh bitterness that you get. 
so so I'm right right in the middle at 62 IBUs. Um, as far as sorry, what was the last question? Like how big was that dry hop charge with like the brew oh, yeah. and all that? So for the, the the dry hop, it was three ounces of each. So three ounces brew one, three ounces Idaho seven, three ounces of Nelson Sauvin. And that's in a five gallon batch. Correct. So, so you're talking right nine, nine, ounces. Nine, nine, nine ounces total on the dry hop, which is yes. Denny, remind me that's that's like what right up against the shell hammer limit or right past uh, it. Actually, actually, it's over. Yeah, five yeah. or six. I think six would be would be uh, for his limit of, of eight grams per liter. Yeah. Well, but still, I yeah right. It's I like mean, yeah. What it, again? I'm I'm just impressed with yeah. Again, this is. I mean, this could be a very rich beer, and it could also be a very overpowering beer in terms of the hop oils, but this isn't to me, right? This uh, this runs right in that nice middle ground. I would be, I could easily see going and having two pints of this before I realized I was going to get myself into trouble. <laughs> yes, and honestly, that's that was exactly the the goal of this beer, and it's and it's the exact idea of what I personally think a cold IPA should be is, is really trying to pull all these aspects all at once. You know, I think have, I would never call it a West coast. So, you know, all those West coast drinkers out there don't want them to, uh, to get upset with me. Um, <laughs> it's really just trying to pull a lot of great aspects out of a lot of great styles to create one specific style, which has been done a lot it's it's been done quite often, you know. Even as far as recent recent years, I mean, you got the craziest beers coming out now, and everybody seems to be okay with it. But the second you say cold IPA, it's oh, it touches this you know real touchy subject with uh, with the, with the, with the IPA crowd out there. But well, and don't forget the lager crowd too. Yeah. Yeah, well, you, you know, know, I think I think it's a lot like we were saying earlier that you know there are so many definitions of it, you know, that nobody knows exactly what to expect with a cold IPA. Yep. Um, but again, if if they follow, and I mean, and this isn't that far off from like what uh, Kevin was describing originally, right? That yeah, uh, eighteen to twenty percent, or sorry, twenty to forty percent adjunct based malt bill with a lot of dry hopping. And then using a lager yeast at a slightly warmer temperature, I mean, this this falls into that same general principle. And I get the idea is, hey, let's just like when I talked to Jack's Abbey a couple of years back now, and they 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 really said, hey, you know, the reason why we like to make hoppy lagers is we feel like doing lager yeast allows you to get a better expression of hop. Yeah, you know, this is kind of like trying to do the same thing Brute IPA was doing, but without the di- diacetyl character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm kind of glad the brute IPA uh, did not did not last. I it was think a it noble was idea, just poorly executed. Correct, correct. I think this is a little bit more. Instead of just having uh, an idea and experiment, this is a little bit more thought out. Um, something that can be looked at as a, an extremely approachable beer to the lager drinkers, to the IPA drinkers. And not just slam a, a 100 IBU, um, you know, West Coast IPA that's, you know, just super bitter dry on the palate, which is 
really only going to resonate with a, a very small crowd. This is going to be a little bit easier to sell, a little bit easier to, you know, like you said, enjoy, you know, two pints of and uh, before you realize it's 7.2%. <laughs> now, by the way, that's not to say if 100 IBU West Coast IPA isn't your jam that you're a bad person. That's your jam. Run no, not that. at all. Uh, although no, I can also see, I, I love those. Well, and I could also try seeing offering this to my grandfather, who was like a Narragansett Schlitz type drinker, and yeah, <laughs> him him looking at the color, going, "Well, that's a little dark," I think, because that addition to the honey malt, uh, yeah. and then getting to, getting to the taste of it, and going, "What'd you do to my beer?" Um, yeah, right. <laughs> now, by the way, I also do think I like the the addition of the honey malt uh, in there. I think it gives a little nice extra build to the back. Um, yeah. Use you, you use rice in this one? I think you said eighteen percent, right? Yes, correct. Any particular reason to do the rice over the corn for you? Uh, you know, I if I was to make an American lager, I just I just brewed just the cleanness, the the minimal hop expression. You know, there's you're really not getting a lot. You're you're tending to be more flavor forward, or I shouldn't say flavor forward. You, you tend to be a little bit more balanced with hop character and grain bill all together. Um, so, so with that being said, I like the flavor of corn that, that pairs well with it. Um, corn mixed with juicy hops, I personally think is, is not the best idea. Um, yes. I think it could clash. I think my, people might even try to decipher, you know, sometimes people have, have these uh, flavors and they just automatically go to, Oh, this this is a little bit sweet bodied. I taste corn, boom, diacetyl, and then there's this uh, this image on your beer that's you're like, wait, no, you know, there's that corn is supposed to be there. So, so we got rice as sort of a dry sweet thing that goes well with the the tropical fruit hops, whereas the corn yeah. the corn has a more assertive character that offers sort of a a background sweetness that a lot of people will look and see and read really as sweet. Yeah, I think you can. I think you could pick up on the flavor of corn. Um, you can't pick up on the flavor of rice. I think rice is going to give you a very nice, almost velvety texture to it, and it's going to ferment very easily, uh, very cleanly. Um, same thing with with the oats. You know, a lot of times people think of you know lagers; they don't have oats in them. Um, if there's a small enough amount, and if you uh, ferment properly. Those oats, everything in those oats, all those proteins, those are all going to fall out. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to be left with this very, very smooth, velvety, you know, aroma. Denny, any other questions you have about cold IPA, at least as exemplified by the man bun? <laughs> no, I, I'm really enjoying this beer. And David, I, I really thank you for taking the time to uh, to get in touch and send us your example uh, it's, it's, it's really a delicious beer. I'm going to have to finish it and then uh, decide if I think that it qualifies as a separate style or just West Coast IPA. But that's me. <laughs> See, but I, I would argue that this falls closer into that category we've been talking slash arguing about now for two years. The modern West Coast IPA that tries to marry a lot of lessons together. This is a... Yeah. Is this... I, th- I think uh, Jeff Allworth had argued that cold IPA is not a style; it's a technique. Um, 
so the question is, yeah, is it a technique to get to that goal or is it a slightly different goal? You know? I think to, to, to me, it tastes like a variation on an established style. Sure, but I mean, yes, and I think it's something that shouldn't be taken away uh, from West Coast. I think it's something that shouldn't be taken away from American IPA. I think those are, are set standards, and I I love every single one of them. Um, I do. I don't think this style is is uh, pinpointed just yet, but I do like the fact that. It's it's another variation of at the end of the day a good beer. If it ends up becoming yeah. a style, great. It it tastes good. Um, it's it's a way to show off expressions of new hops that are coming out. I like that idea of it. I like that it could possibly pull a lot of different beer drinkers into the same beer, and you know, kind of like a melting pot of uh, of styles. Um, as far as coming up with a, a set standard. Maybe one day somebody will finally just, you know, drop the book on it and say, hey, this is this is the style and, you know, this is how it should be. Um, but in the meantime, if it makes people <laughs> make good beer, then, you know, yeah. call so, it what you want. That's, I mean, that's <laughs> That's the whole idea, man. It's like, you know, uh, categorization is not nearly as important as enjoyment. Yeah, although I will I say – I will say that descriptiveness, right? And, you know, not, not prescriptive styles, but descriptive styles. I, I'm actually okay with it because I tell you what, I, at least if somebody said to me on a, on a brewery board, that's a hazy IPA, that's a West Coast IPA, that's a cold IPA, instead of just IPA, they would at least give yeah. me some, they give me some direction of expectation. Right. So, yes. Yeah. After all, somebody else saying, Hey, you know, by the way, we have a new, uh, a new beer style called this doesn't really cost me much mental space. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah. As long as I can, as long as I can get to that idea of this is generally what I should expect. Right. If we're there, I'm okay. David, thanks a lot, man, for taking the time to be with us today. We'll let you get back to your brewing now, but you know, it's gone a long way towards helping me understand uh cold IPA. And more importantly, more than your time. Thank you for sending us a couple of cans of awesome beer. No problem. If there's, oh, I, uh, forgot, I forgot to tell that? you the maple, the maple barrel barley wine rocked, man. Good, good. Yeah, I forgot I sent you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't. I, I might have forgotten right afterwards because it was so strong. But uh, Drew's <laughs> sighing because it's yet another beer he didn't get. <laughs> Drew, Drew, send me your uh, send me your info. I got I got a few of them canned here. Um, Sweet, I'll, I'll send one out for you. And probably a bunch of other, you know, experiments I'm doing at home that I can't do on a big system. (laughs) We love experiments. It's in the name after all. (laughs) Thanks again, David. Have a great weekend, man. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Okay. So what's your take on all that? Well, you know, we got some messages from people, and I've seen some comments from people online that saying, you know, kind of in a disparaging way that, oh, you know, it's just a hopped-up cream ale. And I totally get where people are coming from now that we've dug into some of that recipe and, and looked at the, the technique, at least, that David's talking about and that uh, Kevin was talking about. Uh, totally get it. I understand why some people would say that. Uh, to me, and it's kind of like how we ended the, the interview with uh, David. I'm perfectly fine with somebody saying something about like a cold IPA because at least it gives me something to hang my hat on in terms of expectations. I know you keep, uh, when we talked about it, you, you keep thinking of it as another IPA. Um, but I, I think, like I said at the end of the interview, 
I'm okay with having descriptors. I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily buy into the, the idea of style as being like something super important, except for in terms of what it communicates to you for expectations. Right. And so in this particular case, cold IPA doesn't really offend me. It doesn't bother me so much. It just now it sets an expectation and at least I'll take having a descriptor attached to it as opposed to the generic IPA that you don't know if it's going to be West Coast, hazy, clear, you know, <laughs> this, that, or the other. Um, if somebody says a cold IPA, at least I have an expectation of what that kind of means. The technique behind it can vary. Yeah, to me, they could call it a West Coast IPA, and that's enough descriptor for me because that's what it tastes like to me, you know? Uh, I think you mentioned that somebody had said that really – Cold IPA is more of a process descriptor than a beer descriptor. Yeah, that's uh, I, Jeff Jeff Allworth from Bervana. Yeah, right. And sure, I I can see that. Yeah, right. You know, it, it's made a little bit differently. It's got adjuncts in it, but to me, it drinks like a West Coast IPA, a standard, straight ahead, clean, clear West Coast IPA. Um, see, and you didn't so, you didn't get any differences on the back end. Not really. I mean, oh. only because there are differences between West Coast IPAs. You know, maybe I drink more than <laughs> than you do, so uh, I have a, a little bit broader experience of the differences there. But, you know, I didn't see anything that would really distinguish this taste-wise, aroma-wise, mouthfeel-wise from many other examples of West Coast IPA that I've had. I'm, I'm not saying it. I mean, it was a delicious beer. I loved it. Uh, I've got part of it left that I'm going to be finishing today. But again, you know, call it a, you know, a cold IPA if you like. But in that case, if this is an example of a cold IPA, then to me, cold IPA equals West Coast IPA. Hmm. I think you and your five taste buds might need some uh, talking to. Um. Uh, you know, <laughs> I just don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think so. And we'll see if I change my mind after I finish it today. Yeah, but no. I, at least I think we have a better understanding now. That uh, of course, again, it's a new and emerging thing that are people are talking about. And even if it's a technique and not a style, uh, that's okay. And well, I imagine there will be twenty different variants of it. Yeah, as David said, there are a lot of different variations which kind of goes back to what we were talking about is nobody knows exactly what it's supposed to be because they all disagree. Yep. And I, you know, uh, it's not quite that broad. I shouldn't say nobody and they all, but there is a broad range of interpretations of the style. Well, I'm just waiting for somebody to make a, a black cold IPA that they can call it. Cold. <laughs> and the, and a black the, cold session IPA. Yeah, I, I, I'm just going to wait for the description to be it's it's cold black. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, I want to know what you all think about cold IPA. Did you hear anything in that discussion with David that intrigued you or infuriated you or you have other opinions on let us know. You can always email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And we appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us on social media. Life is good. Tell us what you think. And let me just say that if you're getting infuriated by somebody's opinion about beer, you need to really sit down and examine your life. Or actually sit down and have a beer and relax. <laughs> yeah, that too. All right. Let's get out of here.
Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll answer a couple questions, or try to. We'll uh, do a quick tip, something other, and then send you on your way. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching match efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com. to the end <laughs> this is the end see he's singing again this is great great like i can get him to sing if i just say the right words we're yeah, gonna I'm, start I'm very off. much like a parrot that way <laughs> polly want a beer um we're gonna start off by uh, trying to answer a couple questions we've gotten here Yep. And so the first question comes from our good buddy, Steve Hiller, who said, I was in Nashville recently and I picked up a packet of the Mad Fermentationist Saison blend from Bootleg Biology. Would you recommend an open fermentation for this Tonsmere-inspired blend? Uh, one, the Mad Fermentation Saison blend is actually a really good blend. So if you get your hands on it, go ahead and use it. The thing to know about it, it has Britannomyces in it. It's a mixed culture, uh, which, given that it's from Mike Tonsmere, unsurprising. Um as for the question, would I recommend open fermentation? Yes. Up until the primary fermentation is done, and then make sure it gets closed off because you want time for the Britannomyces to do its thing. So open fermentation to start, let the yeast ride, and then get it capped and uh, you know, under airlock so that you can let the brett ride and do its aging thing. You don't want to age it with the brett during an open fermentation. That's bad. So <laughs> yeah. there you go. Uh, but it, that's, that's, that's my usual thing. I recommend for a lot of different yeast strains these days, I, I recommend doing open fermentations, not just around saisons. Uh, almost anything English, I also recommend doing open fermentation with. But there you go. So, yes, with the, uh, the mad fermentation saison blend from Bootleg Biology, give her a go open fermentation wise. I don't think you'll be disappointed. All right. So the uh, next question comes from Mark Winters. And uh, if you go back a few episodes, Mark was the guy who had the hazy check logger that he just couldn't get to clear. To answer your question, I unfortunately was not able to measure my mash pH due to my pH meter not working properly at the time. 
electrode wouldn't get a stable reading. I wound up dumping the batch about a week ago after it still poured like sludge. I recently rebrewed the same beer and used an RO water profile to build back my salts with your advice in mind. I had a slightly lower than expected pH during the mash, 5.22, I was aiming for 5.4, but great efficiency and a clearer wort. Fingers crossed. On a side note, Drew, have you developed a recipe for the malted corn saison? Hmm. I picked up some of the Oaxacan green corn from Sugar Creek that I used in a cream ale and think it would make a wonderful addition to a summer saison. Would you have a percentage to recommend? I was thinking about 25% malted corn, 25% Vienna, and the remaining German pills. I was aiming for a dry finishing gravity in the 1.007 range using the Dower Saison yeast from Bootleg Biology, backed with a decent bitterness using Styrian Goldings. Any advice would be appreciated. Man, it, it inadvertently became Bootleg Biology Day here in the, in the Q&A yeah, section. Yeah, look at that. Uh, yeah, so Mark, on the, the, the Saison, for people who remember when we talked to Caleb about the, the corn malt, he had mentioned that there were a couple of places that were doing a 100% corn malt grisette. So taking that as a baseline, in theory, you could do 100% corn grisette, although make sure you use rice holes or something in the, in the mash. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, let me make it clear that you meant a 100% malted corn grisette. Right, sorry, 100% malted corn. Uh, yeah, doing a 100% corn mash wouldn't do you much good. No. Um, so would I have a percentage I would recommend? You were thinking 25% malted corn, 25% Vienna. Um, I tend not to want that much toastiness. I would think if you combine the malted corn and that much Vienna, you're going to get something that very much tastes like a toasted corn tortilla or corn chip, uh, mm. which is not a bad thing, but that's got to be what you're going for. Uh, I would probably keep the corn somewhere around 20%. And then do a split on Pilsner and a little bit of wheat. Uh, just And that's kind of how I prefer my saisons anyway. Uh, and no Vienna at all? No, no Vienna. If I was going to do anything, uh, uh, if I was going to do Vienna, it'd be somewhere around, say, about 10%. And even then I might think instead of using like biscuit um, or aromatic. Um, but again, just to start with, so I knew what I was playing with, I'd probably just do corn, wheat, and pills. Uh, and then the everything else that you put in there sounds absolutely great to me. I wouldn't be surprised if the Dower uh, blend from uh, uh, Bootleg actually went lower than 1007. Uh, so be prepared for that. And doing bitterness with Styrian Goldings, it's very, very classical. So you can't really go wrong there. Okay. Yeah, that's right, man. Uh- All right. So now time for a quick tip. Uh, and uh, this one's just for the grandfather users who are out there. Uh, make sure you go do some updates because they've been doing some fun stuff recently and they haven't really talked a lot about it. So uh, the first thing that we got going on there is you can now actually with the grandfather controllers with certain setup parameters needed, you can use things like your tilt and your pills and your spindles and all that sort of fun stuff. Any of those fermenter trackers uh, that we've talked about in the past and actually have the statistics reported up on the screen on the conical. So yeah, now and, can, and and in the uh, the app also, and in the app. So now you can actually go and look and say, "Hey, my fermenter is at sixty five, and my uh, my gravity is currently reading ten seventeen, 
Yay! All that <laughs> stuff out there for more people who just want numbers in their lives. Uh, but also very, very handy. The setup takes more than what we're just saying here. You'll have to dig into it. You might have to have some additional equipment based on various things. But that integration is now available and actually there for you to be able to see. Something a little more practical is something you're doing right now, Denny. Yeah, um, they uh, also added to the app the feature to actually ramp uh, temperatures as opposed to uh, just changing them, uh, you know, straight on. Uh, you can now set up a ramp over a certain number of hours or days to change temps. Uh, I'm using that on my current batch. So far, it seems to be working great. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good fermenters and stuff out there. I, we like the grandfather because of the integration and the fact that they just keep adding stuff to it. And there's some other really exciting stuff coming up from them. And I can't tell you about it. See, what I'd like to see now is now that we have both of those pieces is the ability to be able to say, all right, when this thing reaches target gravity, what start a ramp or, you know, start cooling down, start heating up something like that. That would be fun. That'd be that'd be almost professional control. Well, who knows? It may be coming. I would have to imagine. All right, and now something other than beer, because life is not just about beer. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a book recommendation, and then just a reminder of something that we've talked about many times here before in the past. Uh, the book recommendation is a book called "The Ten Thousand Doors of January" uh, by speculative fiction author Alex E. Harrow. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, there's a lot of writers nowadays who normally would have been glommed into science fiction and fantasy who now prefer the term speculative fiction because science fiction and fantasy come with their own expectations, either, you know, robots and lasers or swords and magic. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that doesn't fit into either of those worlds, but this is a really cool story. It takes place around, yeah, 1907 or so, 1901, the turn of the uh, the turn of the 20th century. And with a girl named January scholar, in this world, growing up in a rich person's house because her father is running around the world collecting artifacts for the New England Archaeological Preservation Society. And it's all about the story of her going from being a young girl at the age of seven to discovering who she is and that the world is a much broader and wider, more open place than you would originally imagine. And ending up, I think, about when she's 17. It's a really cool and fun story. I listened to this one on Audible, where, oddly enough, it was narrated by a woman named January. And just a really good, fun story. Lots of interesting things in the world that they're, they're talking about here. Uh, Alex E. Harrow has been one of my favorite short fiction writers in recent years. And so being able to actually get a chance to read a longer piece of fiction from her was really, really nice. So highly recommended. The 10,000 Doors of January by Alex E. Harrow. And Alex is spelled A-L-I-X. All right, and finally, your reminder, Time Team is back uh, for its <laughs> 23rd season. Uh, this 23rd season, uh, supported by Patreon members, is going to be on YouTube. As I'm speaking right now, the first episode is now two-thirds of the way premiered because they've been doing 30-minute chunks, and it's a 90-minute episode. The And this first one is at a potential uh, preceptory of the Knights Hospitaller, uh, and then they're going to have a second dig coming up and even a third bonus dig that's being created out of content from a couple of the team members who are working on actual digs because they are working archaeologists after all uh, in Greece and going over the finds that they that they came up with during this last season. They kind of just 
brought their cameras along and filmed it, and they're turning it into an episode as well. So three episodes of Time Team for you to be able to dig into, along with stuff where Tony Robinson's back doing his thing, uh, not in the show, but other things. Uh, but lots and lots of ancillary content there on YouTube from Time Team. So if, like me, you've missed your Time Team, there you go. You know, there's something about the phrase bonus dig that makes me chuckle. <laughs> hey, you take it wherever you can. Now let's get out of here. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. That's the new improved website. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me hanging around on Facebook or the AHA forum or a number of other places. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 